HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. I'm super excited that it's soft shell crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious. People think, oh, tomato's a tomato. No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So when they come to, to Hampton or even, you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find a incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in Conway. He's it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And Bobby Comforto, your mom. Hi, mom. You're cute. Hi, Hi Zaz. You are too. <laughs> oh, come on now. How are you doing? What's going on over there this Friday morning? I'm looking forward to getting outside. It's spring and I want to watch the flowers and leaves, but I want to take a nice long walk. You know, it was interesting before the show, we were talking a bit about, um, I was just, you know, sitting in the apartment. We got on a couple minutes early today and I'm looking and I can still look at my window and I see this beautiful tree. I don't know what kind of blossom, what kind of tree it is, but it has these big pink blossoms all over it and they're blowing in the wind. Blossom. And I hear my wind chimes going, which um, were dad's wind chimes. So my dad, who, if you guys are uh, recurring listeners, you know that he passed away uh, like three, a little over three years ago. And um, I'm sorry, a little over two years ago. What year is it? Three years ago. Three, See, three. that's mm -hmm. what happens. You forget <laughs> even how many years, which is actually a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so I'm listening to the wind chimes. He used to have all these wind chimes in his back porch. And I have, you know, he'd had like 20 sets of wind chimes, which seems to me too loud, <laughs> but he liked it. So I have one set and it's just chiming out there. And I, I swear I'm going somewhere with this story. So, you know, I woke up this morning, nothing is necessarily terribly wrong. I just woke up in a small little funk early, maybe 6.15. And I walked, I got out of my bed and I looked in my kitchen and I just saw the pink branches like mm -hmm. kind of blowing in the wind as the sun was coming up. And I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. And that's a little win. And it kind of changed my mindset for the day. And I, I guess I'm just mentioning this um, 
because we talk a lot in this episode with our amazing guest, Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Phillips, just about, um, I don't know, I guess the nuance about trauma and grief and tragic loss and tragic loss. And I don't know, it just kind of struck me as like the little things still hit sometimes. You know what I mean? You can still. But we also talked about duality in the show and that you can be in a difficult place and also be able to notice the beautiful bloom outside at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's important to know because when somebody's really going through difficult times, sometimes they feel guilty to have those little sweet moments. Mm. And for all of us in life, there's little sweetnesses everywhere. Yeah, you little know, wins. There's little strawberries. Some, you know, we've told the strawberry story. There's little strawberries everywhere. Little wins, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is a really beautiful day here. And our guest today, as I mentioned, Dr. Suzanne Phillips, um, is an incredible woman. What a force. What a brilliant, uh, hardworking, a brilliant, hardworking person. And, you know, we, you had felt particularly compelled to have another mental health professional on the show for a while. And I think it was an amazing, uh, idea and it was an amazing episode and it was really great to be in both of your presence because you guys are both mm. so knowledgeable about the subject in ways that I will never be. Um, and it's just kind of to be on a fly on the wall. I felt like a real honor. Um, and I learned so much from both of you guys and just, there's something about, um, I don't know, being in the presence of people who are older and wiser than you, uh, that's really special. And I think maybe as we march forward in time in this country, we lose the, uh, the specialness, you know what I mean? Like it's not necessarily mm-hmm. as part of the culture as it is in this country mm-hmm. as it is in other countries. Uh, it's true. Know. Yeah. And it really yeah. is special. I'm wise, but I'm not that old, am I? Well, I, I, I was nervous about saying that because I didn't want it to come across the wrong way. Just teasing. I, yeah. To be completely frank, I couldn't have been around two more youthful, beautiful mm. uh, women of, of your guys' age of 45. <laughs> but no, seriously, mm. um, I was really just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful time to be spent. And I, I hope that everybody has that in some way to have mentors and teachers and people who you admire and just to get to be in their presence, whether it's a parent, I'm so lucky to have you as my parent. I get to kind of have that experience all the time. And it was such a joy to have another brilliant, accomplished, heartfelt woman in the, Mm -hmm. in the quote unquote rooms, you know, we're not in the same room technically, but it just felt like a very special time. And thank you so much to Suzanne for your for your time and your wisdom. And it was really a great episode. And we talked a lot about in this episode about trauma, as you'll come to hear, which is something that we touch on the stories about trauma, but understanding and investigating trauma um, was really fascinating. And it was really a cool, really special episode. Thank you, everybody. Love you. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care of yourselves and each other. We are joined today by Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Uh, Suzanne is a licensed psychologist, psychoanalyst, um, a group uh, certified group therapist, a fellow and co-chair of community outreach for the American group, 
uh, Psychotherapy Association, and she has been a psychologist for over 35 years, and after 28 years as a newly retired adjunct full professor of clinical psychology at LIU Post in New York. I know that is a lengthy amount of credentials, and it is so, it, it is such an honor to have someone of your, um, of your level joining us here on processing. You. You're such an established uh, person in the mental health community. And thank you so much for joining us today, Suzanne. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm excited yeah. to speak with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from home in Northport, New York. Amazing. So that is kind of a leading question as we <laughs> all grew up in the same, almost in the same neighborhood. So around the yes, corner from did. each other. Yeah. Yes, we did. Fellow Islander. <laughs> um, so yeah, Suzanne, uh, you know, as we were kind of discussing before the show and in the weeks leading up to this episode, um, we talk a lot about grief on the show. And, you know, grief is something that a lot of folks experience after a traumatic event. Um, it doesn't always have to be a traumatic event, but oftentimes it is. And many of our guests have had a lot of trauma before joining us on Processing. And while we touch on the trauma uh, sometimes briefly, sometimes more intensely, I think we tend to focus more on grief. And it's really um, interesting and amazing to be able to have you on the show as someone who specializes, you know, in many things, but definitely in trauma. Um, and especially given the tone of uh, the fact that trauma has infiltrated so many of our lives on a, in a global way and continues mm-hmm. to given the um, COVID crisis of the past year. So I kind of just want to start by getting your uh, quick definition of what is what is trauma exactly. Okay, so a traumatic event is one that we don't expect to have. It's one that in some way for a time wounds us with reality. It stops us in our tracks. We are put in a position of fight, flight, or freeze. I always say to people, in the moment of trauma... Everything changes, time freezes, one sense of self is jeopardized. And in some way, it freezes us because we are wired to survive. So we go into fight flight. We remember things different. We don't have a coherent story in our memory. Instead, we have shards of pieces and images. One of the things that happens in terms of trauma is that we're jolted. And we very often don't have the story of the trauma. We've been too busy trying to survive. Mm. And in terms of trauma, loss, and grief, for years, and I have intervened with folks whose partners were murdered, runaway girls, 9-11 firefighters, their wives, families. And this has been a particularly... I, I want to say unspeakable year of both pain and God bless people, also resilience. Yes. And we've had tremendous loss. We've had realistic loss of loved ones. We have not had the anchors of certainty, of mourning, of funerals. We've had the loss of life the way we knew it and the way we know it, schools and sports and restaurants, etc. So we talk also about ambiguous loss. Mm. But the tie-in for me that I've been thinking about since you first asked me to come on is how grief, loss, and trauma are really interwoven. Mm. Because when people 
say something like, well, she lost her mom, but her mom was 94. That never means that was not traumatic for that person. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I wanted to, you know, specifically have you kind of identify because I do think while, you know, the sudden nature is obviously tied to trauma. And I mean, I think both of you can probably really speak to this, but I think the part that I'm connecting with what you're talking about trauma is the like the the constant of your brain trying to catch up to what is happening to you. And that can happen, you know, for instance, I was in um, a terrible accident once, a really horrible accident and a bus that went off a cliff. uh, Mm. And it was extremely like that sudden real like physical trauma and the emotional of like, wow, this can happen out of the blue. And then I also experienced a loss when my father passed away of like a 10 year battle of cancer even though that wasn't sudden, I still felt very traumatized by the hospital stay, by seeing, you know, bedpans and tubes and, you know, all of the things that happen with someone who's dying slowly of a horrible cancer. So I'm only mentioning these stories, my own stories, just because I think like, am I right in saying that those both can be traumatic experiences? Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is, The more I thought about trauma, I also tried to think about it in terms of food. Mm. And actually, in every way I thought about it, food became an important piece of it, Mm. a a piece that could be significant in terms of representing the dysregulations. I would say that I cannot tell you how many young widows that I've worked with after 9-11, and I cannot tell you how many people this year I've worked with who have suffered a loss. And in that immediate dysregulation of having lost a loved one, of inside internally screaming for that loss, very rarely do people feel like eating. Mm, And so at the very beginning, the person who is suffering actually often might even lose weight. But side by side with that, they do need nurturing. And since people really don't know what to say, they bring nurturing. Mm. They they bring nurturing to people's houses. They drop off. In COVID, they dropped off things. Um, it was It's very interesting to me that one of the things that people need after a traumatic loss is nurturing. I have never run a program, and I have never stopped running them for many, many years, where we did not first feed people. That is, it's um, it's just the way it is. Now, many people say the relevance of food to trauma is that you don't really have the words. There's a fellow, Charlie Walton. He wrote, he lost his two sons and their best friend in one night. And Charlie Walton, who's um, in his 90s by now, wrote a little book that said, When There Are No Words. And I read it after book, you recommended it. <laughs> and, and, the, and the little book tells people, please don't avoid coming to my house because you don't know what to say. Mm. Just come, hug, and eat. And in some ways, one of the things I think food does at the very beginning of a traumatic loss and grieving is it says, I love you. I would like to feed you. I would like to replenish you from your loss. I don't really know what to say. Exactly. And so and so it's from the very beginning food is a very important piece. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, 
I think it's also perhaps uh, not intentionally different people's ways of being like, not only do I want to feed you and nourish you, but like, here's a little piece of of me, you know, it's, it's, can be very difficult. I think for people to like reveal themselves, right. Maybe not everyone's comfortable talking about their childhood or what makes them tick or what their triggers are or what their best memory of their mother was like. But if somebody passes away and you bring over a cherry pie, it in some way says like, I am, I am cherry pie. You know what I mean? And that means something to me. And like, I think that's like, I think that's kind of a important thing we don't think about. I, I, we had somebody on a while ago who had a different, who had the perspective of being like her husband had passed away very traumatically in a a terrible, terrible uh, climbing accident. Um, and she had mentioned that like, you know, people were bringing things over and sometimes you bring the wrong thing over or sometimes, and that's a very, legitimate thing too and then the counter of that is that I think the intention is earnest and there's something for people who are trying to be supportive uh that we need to you know within reason try to let them be that too right because this is in one way one big experience you know it's a flux it's like you Mm -hmm. grieve you are are nurtured you someone else is grieving you're the nurturer you know what I mean and it's kind of this constant cycle of like Truly, because right, death and loss happen so often to everybody. It, it's it's it, connection, it, right? Human connection that uh, yeah heals heals yeah. so much. Yeah, you know, absolutely. in terms of connection, one of the things I had mentioned to Zara um, when we first spoke is one of the positions I take in responding to traumatic loss, the loss of a loved one, in the is different than what we used to formally think, Bobby, in terms of the literature, which would be the idea that grieving means decathecting, in some way relinquishing the tie with the loved one. Just let go. (laughs) Yes. But the new thing is the self-psychologists see it very differently. Instead of letting go, you don't relinquish the tie. You transform the tie into an enduring presence, so you carry your loved one with you. A, jo- a Joanne Cacciatore, who does beautiful work, her book is Bearing the Unbearable. She says, your loved one is in the safest place they can be. They are with you. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. such an important thought when we think mm-hmm. about in this COVID situation, how people were, felt such anguish about where was their loved one. And the idea that they we can think of them in terms of with us mm-hmm. and an enduring presence in some way facilitates the grieving and keeps the relationship vibrant and alive. I mentioned to Zara that my mother died when she was 94, but I speak to my mother all the time. I'll say mm-hmm. to her, it's good you're not here because you don't even want to know what's going on. <laughs> I do the same thing with <laughs> my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so... But but one of the interesting things about it, and it was related to food, I said to Zara, is that my mother was a wonderful cook, came from a big Italian family where everybody loved food and cooking was big. My sister's an excellent cook. I was not and have never really been until COVID into food. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> in fact, when my kids were little, I'd either be working, running, jogging or with them. So I would just throw spaghetti in a pot and then come <laughs> back later and see, 
a rock log <laughs> of spaghetti. <laughs> it was totally inedible. And I'd say to my husband, I don't understand it. My mother made such great pasta. He'd go, she did. I'd say, I can't quite get it. He said, I think she spent more time in front of the stove. <laughs> and it's true. My mother, my mother stirred pasta with love. Aww. So I, I said, and, and in my childhood, no, if you came to my house, you ate and mm. you had to sit to eat. Neither mm-hmm. my sister or I ever stand or eat. We sit <laughs> to eat. But, and I don't That's eat awesome. that much. But over COVID, <laughs> I had this extra time and I also had to do everything. So I mentioned to Zara, I started to cook. All right. And I started at one day, I held up broccoli rob and I said, look at this beautiful broccoli rob. And I went, oh my God, that's my mother talking. Ah. I I called my sister and I said, I think mom is coming through to me and threw me through the broccoli rob. (laughs) And so it's it's been so interesting because added to my enduring presence of always telling stories to my Mm. mother has been now, I've I've cooked escarole and beans and I've cooked... Many of the things, even pasta, that doesn't congeal into a rock. <laughs> That's so, amazing! Wow. Yeah, so, you know, I always call, I also call it the internal relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's that enduring presence, and then eventually it becomes this internal relationship that we have for our whole lives. So as you were making that wonderful food, you were in relationship with your mom. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I love so that. All, all the time I've said to people. Um, Hold on to your loved one. They're Mm. with you. Keep them with you. But it's not an easy journey. The journey of grieving is called a dual process. I see it as going forward, going backwards. The best words to describe it came from a military woman who said to me, okay, do you get over it or you just get on with it? And Mm. I said, you actually have to do both. You do both. At the same time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we take some steps and we look toward the future and how we have to cope and what we have to do. And then sometimes we cry and Mm -hmm. sometimes we remember something. Mm -hmm. And it could be 20 years later. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because grieving is loving. I say to people, the greater the grief, the greater the love. I have no patience for people who say you're at the wrong grieving step. Oh yeah. I had someone who came to one of my groups who said, I was told I'm not at the right step. I said, stop with the steps. There are no steps. Mm-hmm. This is your journey, your way, and it's going to move back and forth. And I say to people, if all you did was cry, you would never take your loved one with you into the future the way they want you to be going. Mm-hmm. And if all you did was simply escape and never tell the story of the trauma and never remember the, the, def- the memories and share them with children and move them on, you will never integrate the loss. It'll never mm-hmm. become a part of the story of your life and stay mm-hmm. as something to be celebrated. So people move back and forth, and Bobby, as you know, they take their time, mm-hmm. and they take their time. That's a good thing. Right. right. It's, well, you know- it's not linear. I think that there's also uh, a cultural thing in America that suggests that life is always supposed to be. I think we do 
societally in this country set ourselves up to an idea that life is supposed to be good all the time. And when it's not, it's, it's a problem. I think we do that by, you know, we are a death denying culture. We don't really pay a lot of attention. You know what I mean? We kind of push it, push it aside. I think that there's the American ideal of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of also translates to if you pull those bootstraps enough, you'll be happy. If you're not happy, it means you're not working hard enough. And I think we don't really talk enough about in general that like um, sadness and grieving and, you know, normal traumatic responses and also just kind of Sometimes melancholy, sometimes just evenness. You're right. You know, much somebody, of life is somebody about evenness. Somebody wrote a book recently that said it's okay to not be okay. And that's really yes. what you're saying, right? Yes. Right. Yes. yes. And I just think like the part of it is that we do not have an open enough discussion around the fact that it doesn't always have to be great. And I think that only kind of exacerbates the pressure in that, you know, ideal exacerbates dissatisfaction. And I think if we can be like, oh, I'm having a feeling. A feeling of sadness for my lost loved one or for my lost job or for my place in life is is upon me now. And that's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then another feeling can come in. And I don't think we... Would... You're, well, you're so right about this because, in fact, the culture's expectation uh, creates shame and blame in the person who has suffered the loss. And whether it's a medical diagnosis, which is also a traumatic loss... Like, how could, how could I be sick? Um, I'm a college coach. I mean, it's, it's a traumatic loss to sense of self. But even I would, I remembered so many of the young widows that I work with would, they'd be embarrassed. They said, I don't want to go to the supermarket and have somebody pity me. It was such a sense of shame that they were put into this traumatic loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. That I, I really like what you say. I, in fact, there's one book, they loved it. It was called, I'm Grieving as Fast as I Can. Mm-hmm. And it was the idea of a woman who kept being told by her friends, are you ready to date? Are you ready to date? And she was felt so pressured by them that the, the name of the book is, I'm Grieving as Fast as I Can. And so I, I love that point because I think... It's it's a problem, and I think it's one of the reasons I have found group intervention after trauma and trauma, traumatic loss is such a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to tell you the story about a guest I had on my show, uh, Dr. Wope, Justin Wope. He and a psychiatrist wrote a book about young fathers with young children who lost their wives suddenly to cancer. Mm-hmm. The book. Their work is precious and unbelievable, and the work is and the book is really precious. But one story I thought of when I knew I was going to come on the show about food is really I, I think speaks to us about food, children, grief. So this young father, when he lost his wife suddenly, had a six-year-old son David and two little girls, one three, one a year old. Oh my gosh! So. As all of these men, one of the things Justin, who wrote the book and came on my show, said is, you know what? I realized, whoa, I've got eight men in the same situation. What if they became a group? They not only Mm -hmm. became a group, they met every week. They gave him license to tell their stories so other men could read this book about it. So Steve had little David of six, and he had two little baby girls. So he was trying to work from home help them do it all, laundry was piled up, 
One morning, he wakes up with a jolt. It's 9.52. He thinks, oh, my God. He runs to the room with the baby girls and looks in the crib. Crib's empty. The little bed is empty. He runs downstairs, and he sees three little the back of the head of three little figures on the couch, eating cereal, watching cartoons. <laughs> and, and he says, hey, guys, what's going on? I'm so sorry. And six-year-old David goes, no, no, Daddy, I gave them cereal. Because you seem tired. Oh, oh, my God. Okay, good, good. You did great. You did great. So then the little six-year-old comes over to him and says, Daddy, if I wake up one morning and you're dead and I run out of cereal, what should I do? And he said, whoa, whoa, buddy. No, 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 no. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm going to be around for a long time. Something terrible took Mommy from us. But I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, but Daddy, you see, I can't drive. So if I run out of cereal, what should I do? Then it hits Steve. Uh, This baby needs a plan. Mm. He goes, okay, David, you're right. Go next door to Mr. and Mrs. Riley. They will give you and the babies cereal, and you'll wait there for Grandma and Grandpa. So every time I tell the story, I get upset. But it's so powerful in in terms of a dad grieving and trying to do everything. And look at how children concretize their journey. This yeah. little one thought, now she died. If he dies, all he exactly. knew is he had to feed them. But yeah. there's the food piece. Absolutely. There is the nurturant yeah. piece. It's and so also that he didn't try to take away the thought. He, he went with it. Oh, right. I thought Facing that was an it. important part of that yes, story, too. very brave. You know? Bobby, you've done so much work with groups, and I know you guys have an overlap in terms of um, do. You know, working with 9-11 groups, which I think, you know, when I was kind of thinking about, because uh, I'd love to talk more about groups now because I think it's so applicable in terms of how we're, you know, essentially in a, in a way a big group during de- dealing with the trauma during the COVID crisis. But 9-11 was another huge crisis for this country, particularly people in our area in New York. And, you know, Bobby, what was some of your experience uh, with working with groups during, you know, post 9-11? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, it was a public tragedy. And when you were talking, Suzanne, before about the supermarket and the the young widow in the supermarket feeling shame, when we go through a public tragedy, other people know that we've gone through it. So there's even increased shame. So um, as you, I work with 9-11 community in Rockville Center, and we had a family center there that I worked for for four years. And the thing about that that's most profound is that it wasn't therapy. It was all about families and group. And we had multi-level um, families. We had the children who had lost their parents or yep. grandparents or aunts or uncles. We had the spouses that lost their spouses. We had the parents that lost their children mm. um, or grandchildren. And we had the siblings. So although we would have individual groups for the siblings who lost their siblings or their spouses, young spouses, we also had intergenerational groups. And we also had intergenerational um, happenings like... Um, big parties and feasts and pumpkin smashing and uh, fortune telling. And we did everything to get with as a family. And so that concept of how we heal together as a family, and you mentioned that from the start about grief happens to a family. Mm-hmm. So it's so important that we can bring um, groups together so that they understand the nature of family and families together. Mm -hmm. Um, It was always so profound to hear the different perspectives that a young widow would have 
um, compared to the siblings and compared to the parents. And they oh, actually yes. had very different perspectives of oh, the same yes. loss. Yes. And it was so important for them to understand each other's perspective. Yes. And to be able to share that. And that was the, so, and I, I'm so fascinated by your experience with groups. Can you tell us more about that? Just, not just with 9-11, but with just what groups mean to you and why you think mm. it's so important. Great question. Well, I just recently intervened through Zoom. We were doing groups with people who had been either directly or indirectly impacted by the Boulder uh, shooting, mm. the supermarket shooting. Yeah. And what always hits me, it's what you're saying, Bobby, is it's called substantive validation. It comes from work with the military, meaning no matter how brilliant you might think you are as a therapist, if you've not been in Iraq, you don't know what mm -hmm. it's like to be in Iraq. So when you bring together people um, who have had the same nightmare, they know each, what each other have gone through. And mm -hmm. it's almost, I'm sure you saw it, Bobby, it's such a relief on their face mm -hmm. to hear someone else say, are you having the nightmares? Do you totally. keep thinking of when the shooting started? Mm -hmm. or, or whatever the particular tragedy would be, even hurricanes, natural disasters, when someone feels that someone gets it, yeah. immediately their stress drops. Mm. Exactly, because you feel crazy. And when you hear it from somebody else, you realize, I'm not crazy. It's right. a crazy thing has happened to us. Yes. Right. In fact, in both... The, the young mother's group, when I compare it with this young man's group, the young men's group, in both cases, my young mothers used to say the wrong parent died. In the young men's group, mm -hmm. they would say the wrong parent died. Mm -hmm. And by the time we were out mm -hmm. 15 years, five years, even earlier, they realized, I could put up a tent. Just like this man said, one man said, I actually ran a pizza sleepover party for five girls. Oh, <laughs> right. So, so, you know, right. when they start to realize, and even, it's even important, the groups, in terms of validating the trauma on their terms and their time, but as time passes by, very often we have followed up with groups, as I'm sure you have also, because people really want to know, is it okay to remarry? Is it actually okay to have your child go in the military if you lost your spouse in the military? In other words, they want the journey is a life journey. Yeah. And right. so the opportunity that happens when they originally meet in a trauma group, they very often stay connected. Exactly. Absolutely. And they become yeah. friends, a different kind of a friend, like this kind of a friend that just understands their soul and their trauma. And they understand it. I always say it's like a mirror that when mm. people are in a group, they're seeing themselves in each other. That's mm -hmm. a great way. And, and, and that don't we sometimes all that? one person, can, sometimes one person can't say it in certain words and the other person can, they can mm -hmm. say exactly what they're feeling, but the other person can say it in, in, in words that they can understand. Mm -hmm. I have a hypothesis about the group kind of thing is, that I want to run by kind of both you guys, which is you both kind of touched on it, but that, you know, in the uh, suddenness of a traumatic experience, Suzanne, you kind of just mentioned that, that like it almost doesn't seem real. And I think like you're, again, to go back to what we were talking about initially, like your brain kind of catching up to the experience. So I would imagine that something like a group would help for people to be like, oh, actually this is real. You know what I mean? This is set in, like this is a thing that actually happened. And I know that Bobby, because you're talking about reflection being important. 
I want to mention one other thing. So Suzanne, I, I tuned into your radio show last week when you were speaking with an expert about gun violence, and uh, I found it to be very interesting. And you were talking about, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but I believe it was that death by suicide had decreased a bit during the pandemic. And that kind of really, um, it touched me in the way of like kind of thinking about this as in the same sense of a group kind of experience that, you know, is there something, I think you kind of made this point, is there something about maybe the shared experience of grief uh, that is not forcing people who are experiencing, you know, extreme uh, mental health issues or extreme depression to feel as alone? Can we take that same kind of uh, thought and apply it to what it is to be in groups? And then, you know, I, I guess I wonder, and I'm not sure that any of us have an answer to it, but is the shared experience of what has happened this past year, I, I'm curious about the kind of long-term effects of it. But, yeah, it's a very yeah. good question. And even he was alluding to that. And I have worked a great deal with families that have suffered a loss from suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that worries me, like what worried him and what continues to worry him is people who, who choose to have guns, buying mm-hmm. into gun safety. And one of the things he was saying... Uh, if the chances of you dying from a gun are they increases beyond beyond words if if there's a gun in the house that's not locked up right. I mean one of the things we mentioned in the show is three hundred children found guns this year one hundred and forty one were killed the others mm-hmm. were wounded so you know we have it's a very contentious political topic, but right. I'm so glad you bring up loss by suicide and this comes back to food and groups and narrative and that for many years every Saturday before Thanksgiving I was one of the group leaders in a program run by um, the um, suicide the National Suicide Foundation um, and it was here on Long Island hundreds of people family members siblings parents children of someone who had lost a suicide came together mm. and What made it so powerful is many of these people spoke about the fact that they felt very unable to grieve because they felt such shame. Uh, One one man who came on my show, um, Bev and her husband, the Feinsteins, they wrote a book on disenfranchised grief. grief. Mm. They said after they lost their son to suicide, they'd be walking down the street and someone would cross the other side, basically Mm. because people didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. But in this meeting of people... Every 100 people, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, they would start with having breakfast together. They would just be put at tables. Inevitably, one of the most powerful ones was they would bring people who had just lost someone by suicide. And they would then for the unexpectedly be with others who knew that pain. And one man I'll never forget said, my neighbor here lost his wife five days ago. And I, I had to control myself from gasping. Mm-hmm. But that man, very, very quiet throughout the day, because you followed the groups throughout the day. Mm. And he was in a group with young women who were talking about the loss of siblings. And they were also, um, as well as spouses, that was a different group. I'm combining two groups in my head, but let me go back mm-hmm. to that gentleman. He was in a group with others who had lost a spouse. You know, he didn't hardly need to say anything, but I knew from the look on his face that when he saw them normalize some of the horror he felt, some of the shame and blame, 
that was unbelievable as a first step toward healing. Mm-hmm. Now the it's sim- an energy because the energy lifts, right? Yes, a little absolutely, bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The sibling group reminded me of a lot of work that I think has been overlooked on the disenfranchised grieving of siblings. And this is where I think the family narrative around a meal makes so much sense. First of all, when there has been a loss by suicide, the siblings always feel implicated. Because how did I not know my brother? Mm. And maybe I did know my brother was more depressed than my mother knew. And now... The siblings usually step back because they don't want to add extra pain to the parents. So they are out in space alone with grieving. So when they are together in a group, as you say with Bobby, it's a true gift. And they talk, this particular group of all siblings talked about coping and how they couldn't speak to their parents because they didn't want to upset them more. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. having the opportunity to speak together was so important. And I said at one point, you know how they say you take it one day at a time? Someone reminded me that sometimes you take it one minute at a time. And one of these young women said, try a millisecond at a time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the, the whole idea of people coming together now, interesting for that Saturday day, food throughout that day. People were sitting and eating. Now, and in a very similar way, we can talk about the family narrative. Part of what I feel strongly about is recognizing when people have the traumatic loss with a tremendous amount of grief, they don't have the words. They have the bodily symptoms. Well, very often they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't think, they can't focus. They don't have the words. But over time, they start to find the words, and a group is unbelievably helpful in that reaction, in that yeah. response. Sometimes the family group is crucial. Sometimes, always, mm-hmm. but the family doesn't want to talk. So, also the family's also broken apart with the same loss. Sometimes, so that's yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But over time, as the family, uh, if people have come to my office for a family narrative after, let's say, someone dies by suicide or there's been a tremendous traumatic loss, the whole idea of a family narrative is the agreement that everyone at the table is going to share this loss from their perspective. Mm. Even the six-year-old, even grandma. And it is, if a family will allow this to happen, it is startling what they hear. Mm -hmm. Because they all assume they know why he died. Absolutely. Or they know what the doctor did wrong. Or they know. And then when they hear other family members say what their experience of the loss is, it, it pulls the family right together in a way, as you say, they were broken apart, Bobby. It's a step toward coming together. Even the agreement to do this is yeah. a step toward coming together. Absolutely. And the assumptions that people, we all make as to what another person feels. And the real um, healing is when we can take in what other people are actually feeling and actually thinking. It makes the whole picture look so completely different. So that's such a powerful thing. You call it the family narrative? Yes. When you bring yes. people in, that's, yeah. so that's the family group. Right. It's yeah. cool. And it comes under the heading of narrating your healing. You know, um, Judith Herman says, if you can share your pain in the company of someone who's empathically attuned, it changes the neurophysiology 
it allows you to start integrating it into the story of your life. I say to people, this is like a torn out chapter that has to go back in in your terms, your words, and not in a day, but over time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talk about the neurophysiology. I think that's so much a part of what happens in trauma, that it changes things in our body and our brain, our brain chemistry, so many things. Um, And I'm just thinking about a group that I started the other night. What happens in my practice is that if I have a lot of similar people, I think about them all the time when I'm working with an individual. So I say, would you be interested in all getting together? So I've done that in person, but this was the first time I did it on Zoom. So the (laughs) other night I'm sitting there watching and I I could see the body language. This is the first time many of them had ever been in a group. It was was young widows who lost their husbands suddenly and um, they all had children. So it seemed like such a natural to put them together. But my reason for talking about this is that I was watching their energy and how they were holding their bodies in the beginning. And, and some of them had never really talked about it except to me. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, by the end of the session, everybody had lifted. Their whole energy was right. up. Something right. had really lifted. And I think it was the shame, that burden of shame um, and being able to share in a group Um, that's really what makes the difference. But one thing that I always say in groups is that there's similarities, but there's also differences. So it's really important in a group for people to not use those differences to compare themselves or to judge anybody else or to be self-judgmental, right? Um, Because I think that's an important thing. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting in the men's group, and it would happen, and I'm sure it's happened in your female uh, mother's groups, is the question of, uh, after three years, the groups went. They 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 went on for oh many many years, and then we would do every holiday. They would all meet, and that is when someone dares to say they're going to date, mm. and everyone goes like, yeah. and someone said, "How could you think of dating?" And then the person had such a wonderful answer. She said, "It's not that I don't love Tom, and I will love him forever." But I am 35 with little children. I have to go on with my life. Absolutely. And she was a very good first model mm-hmm. for going on with life. The, the interesting and kind of amusing is we had one woman who was older than everyone else. In fact, we all were at her daughter's wedding, mm-hmm. which she single-handedly did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she said, I will never, ever date. But through Facebook, an old boyfriend from high school, 10 years later, connects with her. So guess who's the first one to get married in the group? (laughs) It was such a great story. It's a a great story. Well, I think that we also, like one of the other ways that we set ourselves up for failure in terms of this kind of thing, like moving on, that we're meant to think, and this relates to like the grieving process in general, whether it's a romantic partner or not. But that, you know, as you were saying before, Susanna, is that like, you know, in the continued relationship after someone dies is is important. And that can always stay around. And I think whether it's uh, divorce or it's a death of a partner, that that there's this idea that you need to be out of love with that person before you ever move on. And sometimes whether the person's died or they're just the relationship has broken down, like it doesn't mean that that relationship needs to end before you can move. You know what I mean? Like, of course, you know, end, end, but like, yes. you know what I mean? Like but we carry it all inside of us. And then that's yes. like a normal, I think normalizing that for people mm-hmm. is important because yes. I think it can connect. Like, I mean, 
it can really muddy the waters for people who are trying to move on with their life about like, well, I'm, you know, and sometimes you're truly not ready, of course, but like that the love for your past partner can still exist. I'm sure that this becomes complicated for parents who lose children too. Like, how can I love a new child? You know what I mean? Like the the complication of feeling like you're betraying your past love or you can't move on until that's like, you know, things aren't binary and linear like that. You know what I mean? Things are much more fluid. Emotions, your heart, your brain, it's it's much more fluid. And and duality. I always love that word. I must use it a hundred times a day that we can have opposite feelings at the same time. It's just such a powerful concept. Absolutely right. You know, you were talking about the loss of a spouse and I wonder the other thing, I loved your book, by the way, I, I got a copy right away. I went and uh, ordered it. And uh, the name of your book is, I'm telling you. <laughs> okay. Please tell us the name of your book. Oh, Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to Healing Trauma and PTSD. And I thought it was a wonderful book that talked about how um, it's so powerful in trauma that the, the, all the trust that you feel of, about life you mm. lose trust in each other sometimes because you're alienated and you're fearful. And sometimes you can turn away from the very person that has always been the most supportive person in your life and your best friend. But one of the things that I really liked about it was in the end when you talked about um, some of the ways to heal that, the psychological first aid, you called it. Could you tell oh, us a little bit that. more about that? I really love that. It was really Great. some of the healing for couples and what they can do. Well, w- One of the things about psychological first aid, and it's also an intervention that you would do, you could do it with a couple, you could do it with a person, but it's also, you can do it as a psychological first aid group. And what it's, it's, what we say is, you know how we would use first aid to respond to a wound just to prevent an infection, even though the healing is going to still take place? It's what we respond to in the immediate, often, situation of a trauma. And what it generally starts out by doing is inviting the person or the group or the couple to talk about what they're feeling. And what you're really doing at that point is making sense of the wide range of feelings people might feel from anger to rage to depletion to helplessness. So you first make sense of the feelings. You remind them What we spoke about at the beginning in terms of people feel hyper-aroused. People feel the indelible images of the trauma. Even if that trauma was the loss from illness. You know, um, in some way, people, some people feel absolutely numb. And sometimes the husband is saying, or the wife's saying, how can you feel numb? We lost our child. He feels the same degree of feeling. It's just registering different. So you help them understand what we know. And my whole podcast and that book all is based on handing people skills to become experts in their own life. So if Mm. you help the couples know, of course we're fighting. We're going to the funeral of our child. We are so dysregulated, we want to scream at the world. Who will we scream at? We'll scream at each other. So Mm. you first make meaning out of their dysregulation. The other thing you have to do hand in hand with that is create physical safety, which is so important to heal from trauma. Are these people sleeping, eating, and exercising or walking? Somehow, you you invite people to buy into the fact that for you to do this, you need to be able to be able to think straight and feel okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Joanne Cacciatore says when she lost her baby girl, she was less than 90 pounds. So at the beginning, it hits you. So you make sense of their feelings. You invite them to consider actual physical first aid in terms of body and mind. And then the most, one of the most important things you do is you ask people about something they lose sight of in the face of traumatic loss, their own resilience. Mm-hmm. So you start to say to people, have you ever faced a situation of such unspeakable loss before? What do you tend to do in a small way if you're down? I play the piano, I run, I, I take photos, I walk the door. I saw more dogs walked during COVID than I ever mm-hmm. saw in my life. Totally. Right. <laughs> so um, you remind people, because at that moment of the traumatic hit, they don't even remember they're an artist. They don't even remember they know how to bake. They don't right. even remember what brought them soothing and love. And then with a couple, they're able to say to each other, Joni, bake, bake. That's what you do when you're nervous. We'll bring it to the neighbors. They think they're bringing us food. We'll bring food back. In other words, (laughs) or what she'll say to him, go for the run, go to the gym. Or, and I have to say, spirituality is a very big resilience. It doesn't matter Mm. what the religion is. Mm -hmm. But for many people, the feeling of being alone and the feeling of being terrified is so great that when they can hand it to a higher power, It brings down the stress. I tell people whether you meditate, whether you pray, it doesn't matter what it is. Whether you run to music, it brings down the stress. So one of the things that you do is remind them of coping. And then I often tell people, because in this life of ours, and you look when you think about it with this year, with the amount of loss of job, loss of grandma, loss of ability to stay in a house, The amount of loss and trauma has been great, but I always remind people when I know a little bit about their background, I say to them, you have the wisdom of a survivor. You've been here before. You know how to do this. And then I tell them the trick of brain resilience that the Navy SEALs use, which is you think of it as a mission. You use realistic optimism. We're not going to cross the bridge without shoes. We have to be realistic. We need shoes and we need rain jackets if it's raining. Mm. Then we got a better shot of crossing the bridge. But the biggest thing that people who are trained to deal with disaster and who have resilience do is they don't ruminate. Once that (laughs) mission is done, they move on. The rest of us, why didn't I? I could have, I should have. Did we bring him to the right doctor? Should I have taken her out of the nursing home? Um, We torture ourselves with this. The the mind is a slayer, right. And I say to people, that's where, and maybe you you talk about Christian Neff's work of sympathy, compassion. Mm -hmm. Self-compassion's enormous in terms of resilience. Because if you can think for a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm not the only mother who's lost a child. Yeah. There are other people. This is sad. I should feel bad. That's where the significance of groups comes in, though, right? Yes. And and then... Even alone, Zara. Even alone. Well, 100%, right? But so what I'm trying to hone in here is that, like, people who maybe have suffered a traumatic loss or tend to go to a group, right? But I hope what this year has taught us, if anything... Uh, and it's taught many of us many things, but 
at the very least that there is a, we can look to each other in realizing that like, oh, right. Like everybody has felt this similar pain, right? Like I don't have to feel alone in this thing. And I think your apps, I think that is the number one thing. And I think we've talked about it a lot on the show. And I think it's so important. I think it's the reason we started processing in the first place is mm-hmm. to, um, you know, break down the walls and uh, destigmatize grief and open up the conversation about it because it's like stepping in a pile of dog shit. It's going to happen to everyone at some point, right? And it's kind of embarrassing and, and it's inconvenient. I mean, obviously not anywhere near suffering a trauma, but like if you realize that like these things in life happen to everyone, you don't feel foolish or you don't feel silly or you don't feel alien or you don't feel other. And I think in that is so much power. You know what I mean? Because like when we think about like why we even do anything, like we're just all here for this little amount of time. And I think Mm -hmm. we just want to try to have as much pleasure and uh, in it as we can, the moments of joy to be as frequent as they can be. And I think that comes from a realization that pain happens. You know, I think that's the best way to feel joy. One thing you're saying that is so valid is at the moment of trauma, everyone feels completely cut off and isolated. Um, The rape victim, the person who loses the child. But when they start to realize, as you say, they're part of a group of of people, of humanity. Humans, yeah. Yeah, it starts to deal with that isolation. But one thing that I wanted, the next step besides I'm human this is something, my feelings are okay, is that you invite people to think, if your friend just said to you that mm. they lost their brother, what would you do? Right. You would hug them. You would, And with COVID, you would talk to them. You would exactly. Do That's what we sometimes have to do to ourselves. Yeah. We have to be self-compassionate in terms of the range of feelings that goes with any loss. Totally, 100%. A hundred percent. So many wonderful uh, things to share. Uh, I mean, I, we could talk we to you for hours all day, but so, okay. So this is going to be a surprise for both of you, but so typically at the end of our episodes, we ask our guests because they are generally people who are dealing, who are in the process of grief, who have had a grief or trauma experience in their life. And the typical question that we ask everyone is if you could, you know, give yourself one piece of advice at the beginning of this process uh, what would it be? And so I don't know that that fits here, but you know, the reason, great questions. Us. I see that, where you're going with this. The reason that we ask people about, um, what that one piece of advice would be is because kind of just about what we were just talking about, the destigmatization, destigmatization around the grieving process. So if like you could give yourself the, you know, the advice is a person who knew nothing essentially, you know, the person who thought this would have never, maybe this would have never happened to, the new person now being seasoned. And so in that same vein, I just want to ask both of you a question that I'm very curious about is why do you do the work that you do? And I know that's a big question, but like, even if it's like to give yourself the, you know, the younger version of you answering it or now, like, I'm just so interested to know because it's such intense work. I know that from being a daughter of someone who sees 40 patients a week going through extreme pain. Suzanne, I know that you are in the same profession, obviously. So what, what is it that, that motivates you guys to do this work? Suzanne, do you want to start? 
So someone, I recently got an award for a social responsibility from this organization. And what I said to them is what I'll say. And that is, I don't think there's any better gift than the gift of being able to give. And I think I feel for, for now, oh, it's almost 40 years, I feel so honored by people trusting me with their lives and with their pain. It's one thing to trust people with your joy. It's something else to trust them with your pain. And I think if there's anything that I can do to, I don't, my goal is always not just to make it nice, make it easier, but to in, hand them the tools to do it, mm. to hand them the you know, the opportunity to know their potential is enormous. And the potential to even look at death and loss of a loved one is to really know about life because you can't really embrace life and loving someone unless you know how to grieve because mm. it's a piece of what grieving is. Yeah. To love is to grieve. But for me, it's been privilege every from from when i started in detention centers with runaway girls <laughs> up till um, the recent intervention with boulder it's a piece of that i feel honored to do it and i'm very i'm very um grateful to have been invited because any opportunity i have to pass it forward i'm taking amazing oh that's so beautifully said really beautiful. so wonderful um so i feel very similar to you um, I also know that one of the reasons why I do what I do um, is probably to honor my heritage. And I've said this on the show before, but my mom was a Holocaust survivor and most of her family died in concentration camp. And she also lost her mother when she was eight. And she also lost a daughter. She lost a 16-year-old daughter in a car accident when I was two. So I, and I was a chef before, as, as many of the listeners know. And um, in the middle of the worst crisis, at that point of my life where my whole business had crashed and I lost, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, I somehow emerged inside of me um, who I really was. And I wanted my work to reflect my nature. And I guess I have a nature of loving and caring. And so I feel very, just as you do, I feel so grateful that I can be who, you know, I think it was, um, Mahatma Gandhi actually said that happiness is when it's congruent who you are inside and what you do outside. Yeah, I think and so. so it brings me that sense of being whole. And as you do, every face in front of me, now that I do Zoom, it's a little different because I keep <laughs> having these faces come across me all day long, 14 faces. It's and, true. And all the different kinds of people, we're all human beings. And I just love being able to do that. And I and I've said this before on the show, but having Zara as a part of this now is just nothing could mean more to me. It's, well, nice. it's my it's honor. To, I, I can't to, I'm just honored to be in both of your presences. Mm-hmm. And I, we have one last segment that we've added to the show, which is, which is very fun and ties it all back to food. This is a, this was Bobby's idea and I couldn't love it anymore, but it, so Assuming that this was normal times, we get to all go to have dinner or lunch with each other after this. We're having a dinner party. Um, what are we all going to bring? What are we bringing to this dinner? <laughs> right. Bobby? Okay. Bobby, Me first? first? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was thinking because we um, we were talking about Italian, Italian heritage and Italian foods. I was trying to think of my favorite Italian foods that I love so much and I love to make. And I guess my very favorite 
Italian food is eggplant rollantine. Mm. But I've been making it lately with tofu. Ooh. And I really, really love it. And it's delicious. And I make this wonderful marinara sauce. So I would bring eggplant rollantine with marinara sauce. Yum. Love it. Suzanne, what are you bringing to okay. this dinner? I, I am actually historically, even though I've gotten better, uh, <laughs> I, 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 can even, I can even debone a bronzino. Can you believe Oh, my this? gosh. <laughs> I cannot. I'm so impressed. I mean, this has been major, major. But I am actually, I cannot tell you how much I love salads and greens mm. of every kind mixed with all kinds of dressings I try with all kinds of different cheeses. So Ooh. that, people know that's me. My kids know that's me, that um. I always do the salad. So that's what I'm bringing. Okay, amazing. Okay. I'm going to bring dessert because yesterday I tried out a new, I'm a biscotti. Like I'll find something that I love making and then making it every oh, kind I of like way. Biscotti. And I put, <laughs> Yes. So yesterday I made biscotti that have um, walnuts and candied oranges and a little bit of black pepper in there and cardamom and um, polenta for a little crunch. So I'm <laughs> wow. bringing dessert. I'm bringing the biscotti. Ooh, excellent. And I think we yeah. need some cappuccino, right? Yes, and cappuccino. Yes. Okay. With a little right. more. cappuccino. That sounds great. <laughs> okay. Suzanne, this was a like a distinct pleasure and honor and jo- yeah. and really just such an interesting episode and thank you for just sharing your wisdom. And it was so cool for me to be able to be with both of you wise women who have so much experience and such incredible, uh, yeah, just a career filled with so much. I can't even imagine how many stories both of you have heard. And Suzanne, it was just really a pleasure. And, and great to finally meet you. Oh, face it's face. a pleasure. It's a great to meet you. And it's and, it, and you do look familiar. And I'm so good to know about you again, Bobby. Yeah. Because yes. I'm sure we will touch, pet, pet, we'll cross paths again together. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. very soon, Suzanne. Yeah, very yeah. good. It's been a pleasure. It's a great podcast. Keep sharing the wisdom. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Okay. Oh, before before we go, could you tell us, Suzanne, about your podcast, uh, your show, your radio show, and the book? Yes. And just tell us so that uh, listeners can know about it. Okay. Um, the book is, um, you know, Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to, to Dealing with Trauma and PTSD. And the radio podcast, we have had over 250 podcasts and um the the the, it's called psych up live and if you just google psych up live you'll get right onto the site and you can go through any month you will see what shows we're offering we offered the show on gun violence last week this week is a precious show on um, gender diversity in children because mm. I'm I'm concerned about transgender children helping parents um, so that I think you'll find um, this week great we've had shows on couples um, you name it we've had a show on it um, insomnia depression is grandpa great. depressed yeah. so take a look at that and my new blogging site is called speaking about trauma. Um, it's on Psychology Today, um, and if you, uh, all you have to do with that one is um, put in Speaking About Trauma Psychology Today, and all the blogs will pop up. If you want to see my writing and my articles and 300 other blogs from another site, that would be www.couplesaftertrauma.com. You will get everything I'm doing in one place on that site. You are Amazing. so prolific, and you've done so much good work. Thank you. Really great. Oh, thank, thank you, you. Okay. Enjoy. Bye. Take care. 
This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.